Okay, Colossians chapter 3. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. Then we're going to skip down to uh, verses 12 through 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Therefore, as God's chosen ones, holy and dearly loved, put on compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a grievance against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you are also to forgive. Above all, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of Christ, to which you were also called in one body, rule your hearts and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Amen. Would you pray with me again briefly as we look at God's word? Father, by your spirit, what we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. And what we are not, make us. So that Jesus Christ might be more preeminent in our lives, in our church family, and in our community. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So during the pandemic, you may remember that several states and municipalities put in place mandates that forbade singing. When churches gathered together for worship, they were not allowed to sing. In July of 2020, California was the first to ban both singing and even chanting as a replacement for singing in their gatherings. And that controversial ban went all the way to the Supreme Court. And of course, this was all due to the coronavirus pandemic. Washington State then put in a four-week ban on singing indoors in November of 2020. So according to these particular leaders and governments, singing is at the very least, a dispensable part of corporate worship. It's not vital. It's not necessary. So that brings up an interesting question. Why do we sing when we gather together? Also brings up the question, were these governmental authorities correct 
with or without a health emergency, let's just set that aside for a moment, is singing an optional or essential part of the gathering. And not just of the gathering, but of Christian life and worship generally. As we just heard read in Colossians chapter 3, gratitude is all over the end of this chapter. We see phrases like, be thankful and with gratitude in your hearts to the Lord and giving thanks to God the Father. Three times in three or four verses at the end of Colossians 3. And Paul is driving at something here that we can't miss. He's making this claim. Remember the first two chapters of Colossians has no commands whatsoever. It is all fact. It's all information. It's all here is your position in Jesus Christ. The commands that do show up in the second chapter are warning them against adding anything to the gospel. You get to chapter 3 and all of a sudden the floodgates open and there are all these commands that are given. And what Paul is doing is he's making the claim that the gospel is at the center of what it means to be a grateful person. Gospel-produced gratitude leads to essential activities for us as believers. So as we focus, focus on three verses, 15, 16, and 17 this morning, here's our big idea. This is where we are driving everything towards in the next few moments. Because you are united to him through the gospel, Jesus calls you to godliness and gratitude. Jesus calls you to godliness and gratitude. You see, godliness and gratitude are inseparable. There is no true godliness without gratitude. A person cannot be godly if not grateful. Without gratitude, godliness is like an empty shell. It's like going to Five Guys Burgers and Fries and grabbing one of those peanuts and there's no peanuts in the shell. It's just empty and worthless and really frustrating. There's nothing valuable there. It's worthless. And vice versa, true gratitude, that is gratitude at its fullest expression, in its ultimate form, flows from godliness. A godliness brought about by the gospel going deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into our hearts and our understanding. So godliness and gratitude are inseparable. But why does this matter? Well, do you remember what the theme of the book of Colossians is? Back in Colossians chapter 1, Paul says that you might walk worthy of the Lord Jesus. And he goes on to say that no amount of doing, no amount of rule-keeping, no amount of works-based righteousness can create godliness. Godliness only flows from our union with Christ. And from that union with Christ, from that new state of being, of being a new creation, from that flows the doing, the dozens of commands that we see later on or here in chapter 3. And so as we seek the new realities of being united to Christ, we are to put off certain things. We are to put off sexual immorality and divisive speech and prejudicial bias as we've looked in the past weeks. And then we put on the new clothes of the new Adam. And that 
those new clothing, that new clothing looks like a compelling community of relational beauty like we looked at last week. And all of this flows from what? From within us? No. It flows from our union with Christ. So in these verses, what we come to find is two more commands. The first one is, be thankful. It's a command to experience gratitude inwardly. So Jesus calls us to himself through the gospel, and that call from Jesus to Jesus means a call towards true godliness and true gratitude, towards a gospel-shaped walk and a gospel-informed worship. So if this is what Jesus calls us to, then it is something that ought to be of a concern to us. How do we grow in gratitude? How do we grow in godliness? From this passage this morning, there are four different questions that we can ask to gauge our growth in gratitude and our growth in godliness. So these are the four questions that we're going to look at. Do I soak in the gospel? Do I sing of the gospel? Do I speak in light of the gospel? Do I serve in light of the gospel? So four gauges for us. Let's look to Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 as we ask this first question, do I soak in the gospel? Colossians 3:15 ends, and be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So these are the two commands. Be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell richly in you. And we ought to point out that every time you see the word you in this passage, it's plural. So if Paul was here this morning preaching in, at Sojourn in Chattanooga, he would say, y'all be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in y'all richly. We use this word richly to describe all sorts of things, don't we? Something that's life-giving, something that's sustaining, something that's filling. We speak of rich food. It has an abundance of flavor. We talk about being rich in terms of wealth, abundance. And Paul is saying that the word of Christ, the gospel, is to dwell among us in abundance, overflowing in a life-giving, sustaining way. And this is why we are unapologetically a gospel-centered church. The gospel is not something we move on from at the beginning stages of our walk with Jesus. The gospel is what we live in the entirety of our Christian life. There's a corporate dimension here that continues the idea of compelling community that we talked about last week. But for something to be true of us generally, it has to be true of us individually, right? If it's going to be true of the community, it has to be true of the members of the community individually. So as a church, our gospel-centeredness our corporate gratitude towards God and our corporate growth in godliness is going to be in direct proportion to how each one of us individually takes up the call of Jesus to soak in the gospel. And that also means 
that whether or not we are going to be a compelling community of relational beauty in this wider community depends upon whether or not we as individuals take up this call of Jesus. So one of the questions we ought to be asking is, how do we soak in the gospel? What, what does this look like practically? And the short answer to that is the means of grace. It takes careful reading and meditating on the Word of God as the Word about Christ from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It takes practices of silence and solitude, practices of that media generally and social media in particular doesn't really help to cultivate, does it? It takes unhurried times of prayer, asking God to show us by His Spirit how Jesus' completed work addresses our heart idolatry and our human weakness, how Jesus meets us in both our sin and our suffering as Savior. But you might be asking, okay, that all sounds great. Where do we begin with these sorts of practices. Well, I actually brought some resources this morning that I wanted to encourage you towards if you don't have particular resources that you're using right now to soak in the gospel. Last week or uh, two weeks ago, we sent out an email um, that had a Good Friday resource. Uh, In that Good Friday resource, there's uh, a series of seven lessons, basically, where you can read through and meditate on particular passages of Scripture leading up to Easter and it will allow you to soak in the story of the gospel. In addition to that, um, you may or may not have heard of this resource. It's called the Gospel Transformation Bible. This Bible does a great job of helping you connect the Old Testament to the New Testament. It shows you how Jesus is the central storyline of the entire scripture. So the Gospel Transformation Bible. Um, We also Uh, are using in our circle up time on the first Wednesday night of each month, and this is a shameless plug for that coming up this coming Wednesday, the Gospel-Centered Life. I don't know if that's me or something else. The Gospel-Centered Life um, by Bob Thune. This is an 11 or 12 lesson book that walks you through the gospel, not in um, a surface level way, but it asks you questions to allow the gospel to penetrate deeper into your heart, uncovering the idols that the gospel and the Lord Jesus intends to remove from your heart and life because he frees us from sin. Another resource that may be helpful, um, Be Thou My Vision. This is a uh, personal book of daily worship, and it actually takes the same liturgy that we use Sunday by Sunday, Uh, and walks you through that personally. So there's a a time of adoration before the Lord. There's uh, a time of confession of sin. There's uh, a particular catechism to walk through or profession of faith. And then there is a reading plan where you can get immersed into the scriptures. So Be Thou My Vision, a liturgy for daily worship. And then two more that I will highlight. uh, Three more, briefly. I know this is a lot. Um, but hopefully one of these may be helpful. Jesus on Every Page by David Murray. Ten Simple Ways to Seek and Find Christ in the Old Testament. This may give you the Old Testament back, uh, where you will come to recognize that Jesus is the heart 
of the Old Testament. It's not simply a collection of true stories. It is definitely a collection of true stories, but it is much more than that. They are stories intended to direct us to Jesus. And every moment holy is a book of daily liturgy that takes the most mundane activities of life, like having your morning coffee, and elevates it, reminds you that you are having your morning coffee before the presence of God, and by the person of the Spirit can do so communing with Jesus. Uh, And uh, this book in particular has been really enjoyable for my wife and I. And then this one, we'd like to offer every single one of you this morning a free copy of this. We've got them out uh, at the table. If you don't have a copy, it's called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. This book will immerse you into the heart of Jesus. There's one place in the scriptures where Jesus tells us what his heart is for sinners and sufferers. And it's not condemnation, and it's not judgment. His heart for sinners and sufferers is this. He is gentle, and he's lowly of heart, and he invites you to come to him. So those are a few resources I want to direct your attention towards that may be helpful for you personally or you as a family to soak in the gospel. But simply being here this morning, this is also a way that we soak in the gospel. That's why we have a liturgy every week where we immerse one another verbally in what Jesus Christ has done for us and remind ourselves that we can confess our sin without shame and without fear because Jesus has forgiven us. Later on in this service, we'll enjoy the Lord's table together and we'll celebrate the sacrifice of Christ. What are we doing? We are not getting a daily snack We are immersing ourselves in the gospel. So, first question to gauge our growth in gratitude. As we immerse ourselves in the gospel, God will produce a gospel-shaped gratitude within us. Do I soak in the gospel? Gauge number two. Do I speak in light of the gospel? Do I speak in light of the gospel? He says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he gives three different expressions of what it means for the word of Christ to dwell richly. The first two deal with our speaking, teaching, and admonishing one another. Now you may remember back in Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, that Paul himself says that his mission of sent to, uh, given to him by God, is to warn and teach and admonish others. So it might have been a bit of a surprise for the Colossians to hear this letter being read to them to find later, oh, we are actually to be engaged in this same mission, teaching and admonishing one another. It will look like humble, patient, intentional instruction of one another, catechizing one another in the ways of Jesus admonishing or warning one another when sin or idolatry seems to have a foothold. Now, I'm guessing, and as soon as I've mentioned some of those words, some of you may have little yellow flags or maybe red flags popping in your mind going, wait, that sounds really uncomfortable. I'm not sure I want to be all about that. Does it seem scary to you? Does it seem intimidating that your brother or sister down the row from you has been called and commissioned by God to watch for your spiritual well-being, 
and that you, in turn, have been called of God to watch for the spiritual well-being of your brothers and sisters. We're funny creatures, aren't we? We long to be known and loved and accepted. But when love in its truest form comes knocking in the form of patient instruction and gentle correction, we run scared like there's something to avoid. We earnestly desire the sorts of relationships where people are looking out for us, right? I trust you desire that. If you're a follower of Jesus, there ought to be something within you that says, yes, I want to surround myself with people who will look out for me. But then we shy away from the practical outworking of that. And we avoid getting intentionally involved in a life group, gospel community type setting where this happens on a regular basis. Our life groups are vital to this in order to know how to teach one another, encourage one another, admonish one another. We've got to know one another because admonishment without knowing someone is simply luxuring at them. During World War I, as pilots were flying the very early aircraft, one pilot might radio, radio to another one, I've got your six. Got your six. That number six was a reference to the six o'clock position on a watch face. And if you put that watch face flat, six is pointing behind you. That pilot was communicating, I've got your back. You pay attention to, to what's ahead. I'm looking out for you. You're not alone. Within the church, this mentality ought to be present everywhere. I've got your six, you've got my six. And we demonstrate that by speaking to one another gospel truth and then warning one another and encouraging one another when it seems like that gospel truth is in danger of being practically ignored because we're worshiping at the altar of materialism or power, prestige, popularity, or wealth, or whatever the idol is in front of us. And the honor of Jesus in the eyes of our community is at stake in how you and I walk as followers of Jesus in Chattanooga. And putting on love means we put on the responsibility of getting each other's back. And we embrace the reality of others getting into our spiritual business. After all, we're united to Jesus Christ. That's what Colossians 3, 1 through 4 says. And if that's true, then you and I have nothing to hide. We have no one to impress. We have nothing more to gain and all the acceptance we need. So we don't need to be fearful of this kind of gospel engagement. So follower of Jesus, 
do you speak in light of the gospel? In what ways may God be inviting you to greater engagement and teaching and encouraging those around you? Not in an official classroom instruction, but in simple daily, everyday discipleship. And in what ways might God be inviting you to speak harder words in light of the gospel to a brother or sister that is in danger of walking away or walking in a way that is unworthy of our Lord? So for just a moment, I'm going to get a tad personal and it may be uncomfortable. We're coming out of a season of a pandemic, and all sorts of habits and rhythms of life were completely thrown out of whack, right? So the question is, do you have a dear friend who's a follower of Jesus who has not yet returned to the gathering of a local church? Is there a friend that you have who professes faith in Christ that you could express your love for them in the gospel by engaging with them and expressing your concerns with them? If they haven't yet returned to the gathering, why not? And what will be the metrics by which they decide it is now time to return to the gathering? Or is it that the convenience of watching a service online has become a habit that's replaced something it was never intended to replace? The embodied gathering of believers in the same space at a specific time to worship the Lord Jesus. That may be one way God is calling you to speak in light of the gospel in your relational sphere. So do I soak in the gospel? Number two, do I speak the gospel? Gauge number three, do I sing of the gospel? Do I sing of the gospel? The Christian Standard Bible translates verse 16 this way. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. So one way that we teach and admonish one another, we've already engaged in this morning. We have sung, yes, to the Lord, gospel truth, but at the same time, we have been singing to one another. We use our voices in song to remind one another about what Jesus has done for us. So notice that corporate worship in song is not primarily about us. It's not necessarily about some experience of worship that we feel in the moment. Now certainly, we want our affections to be flamed up by what we're singing, without doubt. But perhaps more important than that, according to this verse is the fact that you lifting up your voice and singing may be what our Heavenly Father uses to inflame the affections of the person two or three rows in front of you or four or five seats to your left or right. 
we sing to one another. I'm going to pause right here. Can we just acknowledge that is really annoying? And I have no idea where that's coming from. And it's okay. So we'll just keep going. But we get to use our voices on a Sunday-by-Sunday basis to fan into flame the affections of our brothers and sisters for their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking, not because I'm a prophet, but because it's easy to think this. Well, I can't sing very well. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, so certainly I'm exempt from this, right? Well, Paul doesn't say anything about the quality of the singing, and I'm very thankful for that. There's another portion of Scripture that says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. And we could make quips all day about how so-and-so certainly has the noise part down of that verse. But in all seriousness, corporate singing is corporate witness. Just as much when we profess our faith together using a creed or a passage of Scripture, when we lift our voices together to sing, we are declaring in a counter-cultural way that God, His ways, His works are worthy of our attention, of our devotion, of our gratitude. So in just a few moments, well, that's setting expectations. In a few minutes, after the Lord's Supper, we will sing, Christ our hope in life and death. God may use your joyful singing, even if it's a joyful noise, He may use your joyful singing of that song to strengthen the weary heart of a single mom down the row who is just completely worn out in life and wondering if Jesus really is her hope. Or to remind the young adult in front of you who's getting caught up in the culture's lie that materialism is a God worthy to be worshipped. God may use your voice that to remind that Jesus is a treasure more valuable than anything. And God may just shine his light into the heart of an image bearer near you who for the first time will recognize that yes, Jesus really is a treasure worth clinging to and a savior worth following. So when we gather to sing, we are not simply taking up time in a service. It is intentional. It is missional. It is bringing one another back to the gospel. So in danger of stepping on more toes, for just a moment, men, can I address us in the room? Ladies, you are more than welcome to listen in. And brothers, please understand this. I speak this as one who has led worship in church context for more than a decade. For whatever reason, I've heard men in religious context comment, usually with some annoyance, God made men rational and women emotional. And so, when it comes to worship in a religious context, men, we often are awkward, we're cool, we're quiet, we're subdued. But for some reason, put us in front of a 
Tennessee game watching the orange and white score and we'll sing Rocky Top at the top of our lungs with 100,000 of our friends at Neyland Stadium. Why is that? Why is it that a three-pointer on March Madness will send us into a world of ethereal joy or the deep, dark depression of a busted bracket? But when it comes to singing the gospel, we think this is where our sisters shine more than we, and we can just patiently stand and wait for a more cerebral part of the service to engage in. Now, I'm not talking about not singing because we don't know a song, a particular song. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the habitual practice of of allowing others to carry the burden of teaching and admonishing one another in song. While we chill out, we hang back, we don't show up with a song in our hearts and on our lips. So brothers, for just a moment, can we acknowledge before our Lord today that if this is our practice, we need to repent and return in faith to the gospel. That it's a privilege to sing with gratitude in our hearts to the Lord. Let's believe in faith that Jesus has called us to something far better. So is there gratitude in your heart towards God for his work in the gospel, men? If not, why not? Has the gospel captivated your affections? Or are you and I so sidetracked by our idols that they seem more worthy of our attention and devotion and praise than the one who, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Jesus, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that was against us and nailed it to his cross. So brothers, Jesus is calling us to something far better than passivity in song in the morning worship gathering. So let's hear this call of Jesus as a call to action to embody what it means to gratefully teach others selflessly through our robust singing in the gathering together. And I hope you heard that as a brother who understands what it is to walk into a space and not feel like singing. So gauges for gospel gratitude. Do I soak in the gospel? Do I speak informed by the gospel? Do I sing the gospel? Finally, do I serve in light of the gospel? We've said repeatedly through this series that we stand unapologetically on this reality. The gospel is for every person and the gospel is for all of life. The gospel is for every person and for all of life. And we're not pulling this out of thin air. It's not some catchy phrases that we decided to to put together to draw people through the doors. No, this is what Paul is saying in verse 17. Whatever you do in word or in deed, that encompasses everything. Whatever we do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus giving thanks to God the Father through him. 
So what does it mean to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus? Well, one man helps us and says it this way, to identify oneself by reference to the Lord Jesus was to stake all on his reputation and power. To do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus is to stake everything on his reputation and power. And there's something incredibly comprehensive about this verse, right? Whatever you do, whatever words coming out of your mouth, whatever words are in your mind prepared to come out of your mouth, whatever your hands find to do, wherever your feet take you, whatever you engage in, do it all staked on Jesus' reputation. And do it all in Jesus' power. Now, he didn't say stake everything on our reputation. After all, in the world's eyes, we are following a dead Messiah. That's kind of the height of folly, right? That's pretty foolish from the world's perspective. So, can we just take the wool off our eyes for a moment? Like, our reputations can't take much more of a hit than that in our culture. That's okay. Because our reputations don't matter. It's the reputation of the Lord Jesus, who is not dead, but who is resurrected, that matters. And it's not staking everything on our power. If anything of lasting eternal value is to happen through the ministry of this church, through the ministry of your life group, in this place, in this community, it is only going to happen if God does it. And so we serve one another and those around us as if it all depended upon Jesus' reputation and Jesus' power because it does. Because it does. So for you individually, what would it look like for you to go to work or raise the kids or go to school not merely as a way to pay the bills or something to occupy your time, but if you viewed these activities as a calling of God on your life to bring the person of Jesus by his spirit within you into whatever sphere you walked into, how would that change your eight to five? What would it look like for Sojourn to exist in this community on the North Shore of Chattanooga, right here in Hill City, staking everything on Jesus' reputation and his power? How would it change our service to one another? How would it change our generosity towards the work of the Lord? What would it mean for connecting as a church into this community that God has placed us into? So here's where we started. Because of the fact that you are united to Jesus, Jesus is calling you to godliness and gratitude. So there's no doubt that these are commands of our Lord. And yet I hope you hear the grace and the goodness of the Lord Jesus in these commands. He's calling us to something better than our previous existence and our current reality. He's calling us to a life of true human flourishing in the gospel. So would you grow in gratitude? Do you desire to grow in godliness. Well, let's joyfully follow Jesus, leaning into the power of the Spirit this week 
to soak in the gospel, to speak in light of the gospel, to sing the gospel, and to serve in light of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. And for a moment, we as followers of Jesus simply bow our heads and acknowledge the reality that the answer to all of these questions in the way that we desire to live them out is currently a no. But Father, rather than sitting in our weakness and the frailty of our flesh and the the weakness of our affections for Jesus, I pray that in these moments you would meet us by your Spirit, you would speak life and hope and peace and grace to our hearts, that you would give us grace to repent of those ways in which we are not growing in gratitude and godliness, and give us faith to believe the truthfulness of the gospel, that Jesus is a Savior who saves us not just from our sin, but calls us out of that into true freedom as your children, freedom to express genuine gratitude as we speak, as we soak in the gospel, as we sing, and as we serve. And we pray this in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.